0: Welcome to Business Done Differently, the podcast about challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game in business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Freiberg. He and his wife, Jackie, have co-authored eight business books, including the international bestselling book, Nuts, The Story of Southwest Airlines. Kevin and Jackie have presented to over 2,000 companies across the globe, challenging leaders to stand out instead of fitting in a sea of sameness founders of epic work and epic life they challenge leaders to dream big disrupt the status quo and achieve the impossible this show business done differently was made for the frybergs and kevin i am so fired up to welcome you to the show today my friend hey i'm glad to be with you i'm honored to be on <laughs> well as i shared you know before that our first book as a team that we read. Now, we've been paying our staff to read for many years, individually, The Better Book Club. But we said, we're going to do one as a team. And we decided to do it in February of 2020. But we were going to do a couple chapters every month. And all of a sudden, pandemic hit. And we went through your book and Jackie's book, Nuts, during that time. And I couldn't imagine a better book to be reading during the time of the pandemic as we're trying to innovate and build a better culture. And, you know, I want to take us back to The first time that you met Herb and Colleen, because obviously you went in and did a full research of this company and got in there. I want to go back to what you saw with them that stood out as far as their culture before we talk about some of the
1: lessons of the book.
2: Well, Jackie and I went through a, uh, a doctoral program, not at the same time Jackie went through four years after me, but it was a program in transformational leadership at the University of San Diego. And you know, The professors there really made us believe that we could go out and do something in the world and change the world, right? And so, you know, you're young, you're coming out of grad school, you know, and you're going, man, I believe them, you know, who would think, you know? Right before grad school, I had been helping a friend build a distribution company for a cowboy boot manufacturer in Palma, Mallorca, Spain. It was based in Albuquerque. We were in and out of Texas, and I met a flight attendant. You know, you're on the planes back and forth, and you get bored, so you chat it up with the flight attendants. Long story short, I was talking about going to graduate school and met this flight attendant, and she said, well, you need to meet Herbie. I'm Who the hell is Herbie? He's our chairman. He's our boss. They talk just normal. And uh, I said, well, tell me about Herbie. And the more I learned, the more I said, man, I got to meet Herbie. Roll the tape forward. I asked them, Herb and Colleen, if I could come down and do my doctoral dissertation on them and Southwest. And the reason was because I learned enough about them to say, here's a company that is not afraid to talk about loving people. They are always going left on red in terms of doing radically different things. They have a hell of a lot of fun doing business. And yet they're this disciplined, on-time, safe airline, right? You can't run an airline if you're not disciplined, right? So people think, well, you can either be fun or you can be disciplined, but you can't be both. And I'm going, man, this is a beacon on a hill. This is a shining example of everything I've been learning and what I want to write about. When I wrote to Colleen Barrett, one of the co-founders, she said, we'd love to have you come, but we have a battle going on with the United Shuttle on the West Coast, and this is going to take time if we're going to do it right. We don't have the time. Sorry. And I wrote her back, and I said, "You yeah, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If you don't say yes, you will be halting the advancement of leadership studies from here to the end of Kingdom Come you can't say no to this. And I, I just kept pressing, you know, and finally she said, okay, we got a little window. Why don't you come down? And that started the greatest business relationship of Jackie's in my career.
0: Oh, wow. And so when you met Herb and Colleen, so obviously you were, when you first got over to their headquarters and spent time, what were things that stood out that you were like, this is a little different. Like, I want to take us behind the scenes. That's one of the best things you do with these gutsy leaders. You take us behind the scenes in your book. Share us a little bit about what you remember, seeing how they led and how they cared about their business.
2: I remember vividly like it was yesterday. It was a long time ago. I'm nervous. You know, I'm a a grad student doing doctoral research, and uh, I don't have a lot of business experience, but I have some, but not a lot. And here's this big airline. First thing I remember, I walked in and Herb's got a cigarette in his mouth, and he reaches through the door of his office and grabs me and pulls me in and says, Kevin, how the hell are you? And it was like in a nanosecond, he just disarmed me. And that's the magic of what's going on there is that personality ripples throughout the whole culture of the organization. They just aren't pretensive. They aren't trying to be somebody. They're just... You know, Herb said, you know what, why do you have so much fun in your culture? He says, because I want to go to work and have fun. I want to be with people that I have fun with. So that's the very first thing I remember. I was very nervous, and he just put me like, from that point on, it started a 30-year friendship. When we did the research for NUTS, so this is moving forward a little from your question, but it speaks to your question. We brought our Triberg team down and said, well, you know, you're a part of us we're going to write this book you need to know about these guys and i remember Trish Dareho leaving the corporate headquarters one day and she said you know this is more like church than church these people really love each other i mean they really care about each other and they laugh and they have fun and yet they get shit done and they move dirt and i said yeah that's the magic that's the secret sauce so you know i think what we learned right away was you can have fun You can talk about loving people. And I will tell you, Jesse, you know, at that time, they might have been 5,000 employees. And as they grew to probably 35 or 40 before Herb stepped down, they had a network within this culture that if somebody passed away, somebody's mother passed away, somebody had the birth of a new child, somebody was celebrating a 40-year anniversary. They had a system that that percolated up to Herb and Colleen, and you would get a letter, you'd get a basket of goodies, you'd get something from the home office that said, "We love you, we value you." And they used to do a thing. It was called Plain Tales," and it was one of these little audits. How many weddings, how many funerals, how many births, how many baptisms did Herb and Colleen attend this year? And I mean, it was in the probably close to 1,000. You know, so my point is you can run a business like a family. People say you can't, but you can run a business like a family. And if you treat people like family and you treat them like adults, guess what? They're going to act like family and they're gonna act like adults, and you manage the exceptions.
0: Oh, that's great. It will bring up a debatable game later because the family versus team, and obviously as we talk about Bruce Bochy and all this, there's a lot of debates on family versus team. Netflix goes very strongly the other way. So I wanna get into that later, but I think the fun and the love that you talk about, there are so few books about fun and business. If you search marketing, sales, values, vision, you know, there's tons of those. But yeah. fun, yeah. you know, what is there, a handful or love? a handful. Yet, when I think about what we're trying to build here with Span Bananas, fun and love are right at the top. I mean, we have the three loves a part of our Fans First playbook. Love your customers more than you love your product, love your people and your team more than you love your customers, and love yourself above all to be your best for everyone else. And like, we talk about this. And fun is everything. You know, I think back to the end of nights after a game, we're at the ballpark at 8am, late night, midnight, one o'clock, we're all having food, having drinks, then we want to go play kickball. And I'm like, how are we still doing this? But it's wanting to be around each other. And I think it's very hard to teach. So I, I'd like to dive in on this. It's different because I know we talk about disruption and I want to get to that. But fun in business, they talk about hiring for fun. You share that, you and Jackie, how you hire for fun and how you don't take yourself too seriously at work. Can you share a little bit of those insights that you've learned from Southwest?
2: You know, their whole thing is if you fly southwest, you will see singing flight attendants, you know, and they do comedic routines. And nobody teaches them to do that, right? It's just it's a contagious kind of ripple effect, if you will. What they say is bring your personality to work. Your thumbprint is different than mine. You bring something, Jesse, to the world that Emily can't bring to the world. Emily brings something that you can't bring and that I can't bring, right? And when we bring what we've been made to do and created to do, guess what, there's this symphony, if you will, of incredible gifts and talents that come to play. So Herb always said, don't check your personality at the door, you know, you get on most airlines, even today, it's loosened a little bit, but even in the day when Southwest was really growing, you know, you go fly other unnamed airlines, (laughs) everybody's stiff and professional and You know, if you're stiff and professional and spit and polish, everybody thinks you're safer and better run. And frankly, everybody's just bored, right? You just get on and it's just boring. So Herb said, bring your personality to work and however that plays out, we're good with it and we'll manage the exceptions to the rule. I'll give you an exception, all right? Okay, so this is funny. On a 737, you have by FAA requirements, you have an A flight attendant, B flight attendant and C flight attendant. And this is back in the days when they wore not hot pants, but khaki shorts and, you know, polo shirts and that kind of thing. And it's a late night flight, 10 o'clock last flight of the evening, and the plane isn't very full. And so everybody is either in the middle of the aircraft or at the front. There's nobody in the back. And yet, the A, B, and C flight attendants still have to give the FAA safety announcements, right? So the C flight attendant is in the back, right? And she's got nobody back there, right? Make the B and A flight attendants laugh, right? So she bends over and moons the B flight attendant, right? And about the time she does, this old lady, as a passenger, looks back, <laughs> to the B flight attendant, right. Oh, and she's up in arms, right? I can't believe you could be that unprofessional. This is crazy. What kind of airline are you in?" she writes into her, right? And Herb writes, pulls out one of his Herb cards and writes her a note back and says, man, I am so sorry you caught us with our pants down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they talked to that flight attendant and said, you know, there's a line to be drawn and you shouldn't cross it. And of course, in this day and age, that would be much more egregious than it was back in, the, you know, call it early 2000s. But my point is, if you're going to encourage people to have fun and love, you will have people step over the line, but does that mean it's not right to do? No. It just means you manage the exceptions and kind of rein it into, you know, wherever the boundaries are.
0: Yeah. And I think it probably you know, you look at it, it starts a lot at the top. If you have a leader, a CEO who's very professional, if Herb didn't you know get into arm wrestling matches over the names, if he didn't the way he dressed, I mean I heard costumes was a big thing for him, but it starts at the top and I think he made it acceptable to be fun. And I, I think I wonder where leaders can take this and say, all right, where does it start? You know, is it started by getting rid of policies and saying, hey, let's dress more freely? Is it by walking in with costumes sometimes? For instance, like this is something that we have at our ballpark. It's our Dolce and banana underwear. And what we do is like our staff, like Patrick, sometimes like he'll be rocking it like it's in the back corner and like making phone calls. And it's like so funny, and ridiculous. But that has to be actually like applauded, not what are you doing? And I'm just trying to think about how a company can instill more of this. I think the hiring is very important. Is there anything else you've seen maybe companies that you've learned from Southwest that started using this more to try to bring more fun into their culture?
2: Well, the one thing that comes to my mind, Jesse, immediately for senior leaders, because you're right, it does ripple out to the top, right? You know, you and I have both been in fear-based cultures, and you can smell them and feel them and touch them a mile away. And usually you can trace that Right up to the top, you know, people are afraid, right? And then you got Herb who pulls me into the office, disarms me, and it wasn't just me. He does that with everybody. And so it creates this more level playing field. You know, my message to senior executives today you say you want to have more fun, be yourself, number one. But that requires some vulnerability, right? Putting underwear on in front of everybody, or maybe it's with the board of directors, right? And you come in with your underpants on and you're bananas outfit, (laughs) whatever it is that requires a level of vulnerability that says I'm comfortable enough in my own skin to be me, not to be me that I think the board wants or the customers want or the media wants. And so when I talk to senior executives, I say, start with being you. What does fun look like for you? maybe fun for you isn't dressed in a yellow tux, right? For you, you nailed it, right? And it's become a a signature. But for somebody else, maybe it's as simple as taking your senior team off-site and going and saying, we're not going to talk business. We're going to go shoot skeet and have a couple beers and just get to look under the hood of your life and get to know who you are. Yes. Fun comes in many flavors, and I don't think it has to be the Southwest flavor or the Savannah bananas or the Freibergs or whoever, I think it's gotta be you and it's gotta be real. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: No, it does completely. And it's just, I think a lot of times people need examples too. Like for instance, the Southwest shuffle that they did during the, what was it? The 86 Super Bowl shuffle. When we were reading that, it was actually during the pandemic and we said, all right, let's all do our own music video. And literally we said, everyone at home film Dancing by Myself by Billy Idol. So during the pandemic, Dancing by Myself, And we had everyone turn their cameras on. And you're right, that does take vulnerability. And like, how would an introvert do that? Well, when you're doing it as a team. So we said, everyone do a video of yourself. You know, I'm in the bathroom with singing into a plunger, which was really disgusting in retrospect, but we're all having fun and doing it. And we put it out. And I think that starts gravitating more people to have fun. And it takes examples. And like just reading about that Southwest Shovel, I never knew about that. I was like, let's just do a music video with our whole staff during this time and put it out. And I think. That's part of the things. Contagious
2: is what it is. That vulnerability is contagious because my thing may not be singing in the bathroom to a plunger, but I'm going, man, if he can do that, I can go do this other thing, right? It has a tremendous ripple effect because somebody was willing to break the ice and be vulnerable.
0: I love it. I want to go from that into celebrate everything. This was a chapter you had in NUTS about celebrate everything. I think this is so key, especially now. Share a little bit of that insight, maybe some stories and things they've done and how Companies can find more ways to celebrate.
2: Yeah, well, let's talk about what you celebrate because when you say everything, everything means everything, right? So, Southwest is magnificent. I mean, if you walk their hallways and saw just the decorations on the wall, thousands and thousands of square feet of pictures of employees doing heroic things, and you just go, you walk through it, it's like a museum, and you say, who are the heroes of this company? Well, man, there's thousands of them because they're constantly being celebrated for doing things
0: what type of heroic things like what were they showcasing
2: so they have a program called heroes of the heart and heroes of the heart every year the senior i think it's now company-wide is it's nominated and voted on through a committee company-wide but it's a department that is lauded for outrageous service right And it could be internal customer service with employees, or it could be with the people who fly in the airplanes. It could be a municipality if they're a department that has to work with the city of Chicago to get more gates out at Midway. But whatever it is, that department is nominated. And then their name, the name of that department, flies on the outside of an airplane for a year, and they call it Heroes of the Heart. I'll give you another example. The FAA keeps three statistics, if I can remember them right, on-time performance, best customer service, and uh, sorry, I'm not remembering the third right now. It'll come to me. There are just simply three statistics kept by the FAA and the Department of Transportation. Southwest was the best in a year, so they went out and bought themselves a trophy called the Triple Crown. They won it the second year, and they won it the third year, and they won it the fourth year, and they won it the fifth year. Well, in the fourth year, you know, you've kind of won it four years in a row. It's like you won the World Series four years in a row. How do you keep this team motivated to win another one? They said, listen, we will do something incredibly special for you if we can win number five. Well, they went out and won number five. And so they're going to buy an airplane anyway, right? Because they're constantly adding airplanes to the system. So they painted this airplane and called it Triple Crown One. And at the time, they had 25,000 employees. And on the overhead bins in the airplane were etched in the bin, you know, when the bin slides down, the signatures of every one of those 25,000 employees. Now think about what happens. You're a passenger and you get on the plane and you, you see the plane maybe painted from the outside, maybe from the jetway, maybe not, but you get on, you slam down, you put your baggage in, slam down, and you see, you know, 50 signatures on this panel. And you look at the flight attendants, what's that all about? Glad you asked. We'd love to tell you. Did you know that we've won the Triple Crown five years in a row? Think of the pride a flight attendant or a pilot or a provisioning person that gets asked that question and then gets to tell their story. Huge form of recognition, huge form of saying, if you want to know what we value most, it's our people. Mm. And you said it earlier, but I want to just put an exclamation point on it. I asked Herb one day, I said, Herb, really, who comes first? Customer or the employee? I mean, he didn't hesitate. He said, it's always the employee. He said, because if you love your people and your people are happy, your people will do extraordinary things for your customers. And if your customers are happy, they will make your shareholders happy and the media happy and your business will grow. And I mean, Jesse, they have things that are like heart-wrenching. I remember reading one of their stories just very recently. I think it's a woman who's leaving. She's on the plane. The plane is pushed from the gate. And she gets a call that her father has gone into, like, the last hours of his life at the hospital. And she says something to the flight attendant, right? And the flight attendant talks to the pilot. Well, if the pilot has already pushed from the gate and they're going to go back to the gate, they're going to take a delay. And that's a no-no in an on-time warning. Right? Pilot says, yeah, it's a no-brainer. We're taking her back to the gate and getting her off this airplane. But not only did they do that, the ground ops people at that station, I believe it was Chicago, had a car waiting for her, and they drove her straight to the hospital so that she could be with her father in the last hours of his life. And I think she made it on time before he passed. There are thousands of stories that happen like that. Now, ask yourself the question, in a fear-based culture, that's all about on-time performance. And let me tell you, they pride themselves in on-time performance. You're a pilot and you're going, shut I pull this gate, plane back to the gate, or what do I do, right? There's a higher ethic. There's a higher morality. There's a higher cause there than just on-time performance. We'll take the delay. And my point in sharing that is when you have a fun culture, yeah. even with serious things like that, you just say, you know what? I might take the hit for this, but I'm happy to take the hit for this. Because if Herb were driving this airplane, that's exactly what Herb or Colleen
0: would That's so good. As the listeners know, the name of our company is Fans First Entertainment. But our goal is to make our people, our teammates, our biggest fans of the company (laughs) and what we do. And to do that, you have to put them first. But it's so hard sometimes to think because you're leading with your customers. You have to be strategic. And you just got me thinking there. When we eliminated all our advertisements this past year, again, Go left on red, as you would say. We said we're going to create an ad-free ballpark because no one wants to be advertised to, sold to, or marketed to. We developed a fan wall where we're going to let all fans sign the wall to get their signatures actually on our 1926 ballpark. But then I'm kicking myself. Well, thanks. Oh, yeah, but I'm kicking myself. What are we doing for? Why aren't our people signing something? Why aren't our people, as you showed that, shared that story of Southwest? How are we recognizing them if we eventually have a fan hall of fame? Why don't we have our teammate and our people's hall of fame around the stadium that they can take their parents to say? I'm in the Savannah Bananas Hall of Fame. And that could be a frontline person. You know, I think that is so powerful. So now you got me actually thinking about what we're going to do. But I think that's so key. And I think one thing that you shared with Southwest was walk a mile in the shoes, and which was such a fascinating thing that we actually started doing this year. We started going frontline. I worked concessions without my yellow toxin. I learned more in two hours than I've ever learned before. But explain the walk a mile in the shoes and why, I mean, every company I, I believe should be doing it as well.
2: Yeah, it's a very, very powerful concept. All these concepts tie together, right? Because you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and have a hell of a lot of fun, right? And today, there's so much talk about empathy, and empathy is maybe one of the most underrated weapons in a leader's arsenal, right? If I believe you care about me and know me and are interested in me, now we can have a dialogue and I will reach higher for you, for the company, for the cause, for the movement. So the walk a mile program was simply, how does one department go out and maybe, so let me give you an example at LAX, very, very busy airport. And during times like Thanksgiving, which the day before Thanksgiving is the busiest travel day of the year in the airline industry, at least it was before COVID. And so, you know, LAX is just getting slammed, right? So you would have people in other parts of the system that are off. Here's the key. They're off. They're not being paid to do this. Say, you know what? We'll volunteer. They paid the expenses. You know, they put them up in hotels and whatnot. We will go out and serve them, right? We will go out and work with them for two or three days and help them with the craziness. So, Wakamal has many dimensions. Here's another Waccamaw. We called it downline station visits. So, let's just say a flight originates in LAX, right? And the next series of flights are going to go to Phoenix. They're going to go to San Jose. They're going to go to Denver. So the downline station visit was they would take a team from LAX where the flight originated. They'd go to that downline station, Phoenix, for example, and say to the Phoenix station, what are the top 10 headaches we create for you at LAX? So the through count on passengers wasn't correct. And it's frequently not correct. That's a pain in the ass for us. If we can fix that, then the whole thing was you don't go in, yeah, but him. right. You don't go to Phoenix and go, yeah, well, we understand that's a problem, but the reason we do it that way is because blah, blah, blah. And there's all this justification, rationalization. And just simply went and said, what are the top 10 headaches we create for you? They listened and they came back and said, okay, what can we control and what can't we control? And whatever it is we can fix, we're going to fix. And then we're going to send a message back to them and say, thank you. You told us that these were the top 10. Here are the five that we can control and we can fix. And here's what we've done about it. Well, think about the power in an entire system when you've got people doing that everywhere, right? You've got the front office going down to the manager and saying, what are the top five headaches that we create for you in the front office and our advertising and the way we bring people into the ballpark? The manager who's really focused on, in your case, the team, but the entertainment. Yeah. What are the top five headaches we create for you guys in the front office and trying to build this thing and move it forward? Now, all of a sudden, and there's no shame and blame in all this. It's simply we're a team. We're a family. Let's fix it. And yeah. let's move on. And the more we fix, the more empathy we have the more well-oiled this machine becomes.
0: 100%. I love Herb Kelleher's strategy plan, when <laughs> it's called doing things, his whole strategic, right, yeah. it's called doing things. And I think I like this context because we started with a lot of culture, fun, hiring, empathy, and then really can lead to even more greater innovation. If you have a culture where there's fear-based, where there's struggles, it doesn't lead to innovation. And I got to go to a quotable because I heard you on a podcast and I, this quote fired me up. It said, innovation is everyone's job. Innovation is inherent to every job in the organization. If you're not constantly thinking on how do we grow the business faster, differentiate the business more, make the business better, then the organization is being ripped off because you've got a lot of creative talent that isn't being tapped. I want to go into that. I want to jump into now we're going to start going innovation, go business done differently. You got the culture. Now you're saying it's everyone's job. Where can we go from there? Or maybe is it a starting point like Herb Kelleher who did what if sessions? I mean, where can we go into how to get innovation a part of a culture?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I think you have to understand that everybody is creative. I think the problem in many companies is we relegate innovation to the R&D staff or to the, you know, they have many names, the strategic initiatives part of the organization, or even marketing has a big play in it, right? Where marketing is looking at trends and what are the trends out there? And then how do we adapt to those trends, those shifting tectonic shifts in the marketplace? And all of that's good. But the fact of the matter is, you've got many types of innovation, right? You've got brand innovation. You've got marketing innovation. You've got process innovation. You've got product and service innovation, right? And everybody plays a role in that. So if we're just talking about process improvement, right? Well, who are the true experts at that? The true experts are the people who are using the process every day. The true experts, Are the people who see the waste and the redundancy and the, forgive me, the stupid shit that people have to work around every day to get their jobs done, right? Well, if you say to them, you're responsible, you're creative, you're innovative, we value you, what's the fix? If you were CEO for a day and you had this goofed up process between the handoff from the call center to the warehouse who puts the box on a truck that gets to somewhere, what would you do if you were CEO for a day and going to fix this process? Now, think about it. I don't care if you're an organization of two, 200, or 2,000. If you got 2,000 people that come to work every day and say, innovation is my job, it's not a collateral duty. It's not something we hand off to the geniuses with white coats in a lab somewhere. Now you got everybody asking questions like, what if? What if we could take a radio transmitter in healthcare and put it in a little pill that sends a time-coded secure thing to a patch on the patient's arm that dates and time codes the med taken? And that could send it to the caregiver, right, and say, we know they're taking the right med at the right time in the right place. How many billions of dollars could we manage out of the healthcare system? Because somebody thought of that. Because half the problem, half, a significant percentage of the problem in waste in healthcare is people not taking the right med at the right time, right? Think about that. But somebody came up with that, right? I don't know about you, man, but I want everybody in my organization thinking about how to grow the business faster, improve the business better, differentiate the business more because guess what? I'm a smart guy and I have a lot of education. I don't know it all. I can't be it all. I don't want to do it all. I want to do it with my people.
0: 100%. Well, you, well, you talked about us, You can either be a spectator or you can actually play the game. And I think the way we look at it, it's even at our games, our spectators would be spectators for every other baseball team. They're a huge part of the show. We strategically script the show so they are dancing, they are singing, they're going on the field, they're experiencing, so they feel more ownership in what they're doing. Now, that's with the fan perspective, but you have to make it feel with internally your team. How are they not just like, oh, well, someone else will fix this. We need problem solvers. I mean, you first need problem finders and then problem solvers. And a lot of people just said, it's not my problem. And so, again, what have you seen more? It just... Hey, I love the top five headaches. I love that. Is there any other thing that you've seen? Say, hey, let's get more people sharing.
2: I think you give people some tools, right? You say, look, even though I think you in your organization, and I'm flattered and honored, thank you, that nuts resonated for you and you took things, in, but, but you took them and then you put your own twist, your own brand, your own thumbprint on them. I'm kind of a big fan of telling companies Get away from best practices because the best you're ever going to be following somebody's best practice is a good number two. We ought to be teaching the everyone who innovates crowd is we ought to be asking them what's new, what's fresh, what's next? And what if you spent an hour a week, just one hour a week, what ifing our business, you know? what if we could do this? And of course, that leads to a second tool that that we think is very powerful, which is you've got to question the unquestionable. And the unquestionables are those tried and true assumptions, uh, taken for granted assumptions that every company makes, right? It's the sacred cows. It's the way we've always done it, things that are just never questioned, right? And what if we questioned those? You know, Herb Kelleher said, why? Why do we need a hub and spoke system in the United States of America? Why do we take people out of Roanoke, Virginia, a small little airport, fly them into a hub like Atlanta, make them wait two hours to fill a big plane and then fly them to the next hub? Why can't we just fly them point to point to point and give them 25 flights a day between Phoenix and Denver and make it convenient for them, right? That was questioning the unquestionable. You know, when they were bled to $143 in the bank and ready to just close up shop and Herb's egalitarian spirit said, we're going to go toe to toe with these big carriers that got busted for antitrust violations. It was Continental, Braniff and Texas International that colluded to stomp on Little Southwest. They had $143 in the bank. And Herb said, I'll do all the pro bono legal work. Let's go one more round with these guys in the courts. And so they had three airplanes at the time, and to keep the thing afloat, they figured out that they'd have to sell one airplane for a profit of about $750,000, and it might give them another month. But they went to their ground ops people, and they said, we sold the airplane, but we are going to maintain the same schedule with two aircraft that we did with three aircraft. And everybody said, well, how are we going to do that? They said, we don't know, but we think you're going to figure it out. What you're going to have to do is figure out how to turn an airplane in 10 minutes. That means from the time the airplane hits the ground, pulls into the gate, unloads, provisions, fuels, back out, airborne again, 10 minutes. The average turn time in the airline industry at the time was 40 to 45 minutes. And they said, How the hell are we going to do that? And somebody came up with the brilliant idea of saying, Well, let's go study some things outside our industry. Now, if you were going to try to turn an airplane in 10 minutes, where would you go?
0: I think of fast food restaurants and how quickly they can turn someone.
2: Great example. That would be a great example. That's not where they went, but that would be a great example because they're doing something where they're trying to move people in and out. They went to NASCAR.
1: Uh,
2: because if you think about how races are won, whether you're talking about Formula One, NASCAR, uh, everything else, where they won, on the track or in the pits? They are won there. in the pits right? So that car pulls in, the driver hits his mark, right? And if he's over that mark or behind, then the whole crew has to shift by a foot or two. Well, guess what? That's a tenth of a second. Pit races are won by tenths of seconds, right? So if you get out of the pit in 6.2 seconds, and I get out of the pit in seven seconds, guess what? You've just got a tremendous advantage. So what they did was they took that and said, what happens if the minute that front wheel hits the chalk, the gates coming in, the provisioners are on their way with the truck that loads up, the fuel guys coming in, and they're like ants, boom, 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 brrr, gone again, and then they were able to turn the plane in 10 minutes. Now, with security and all the things we have going on today, that's expanded to more like back to 40 minutes, but if you think about it, the rest of the industry is way above that. That's everybody being innovative, right? Innovation is everybody's job.
0: It's so good. And so I think some keys there for listeners, uh, get out of your own industry. It's not about best practices, it's next practices. And to get out of your industry, that's where you get some of the best ideas. And to give you a context, and you question everything. We, my biggest you know, influencers are P.T. Barnum and Walt Disney. They had nothing to do with sports, all right? But they did something dramatically different. When we question the thing of why do fans pay for food the way they've been paying for food forever, just come in $6 for this, $8 for this. We went on a carnival cruise line. We took the whole staff on a carnival cruise and we said, all your food's covered, all your entertainment's covered, why aren't they doing this in sports? And so then we just made every single ticket all-inclusive. You don't have to pay for your burgers, your hot dogs, your chicken sandwiches, your soda, your water, your... and it questioned it. And now we believe it's a better way. And so you question those things and there's so many more things to question. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, why do people have a set seat always? Is that the future where they have a set seat? Or like a Disney World, do they want to move around and have freedom? You know, what are those opportunities to see the game in different ways? And so I think about that. I'd love to get your perspective because you and Jackie have done so much research. Standing out in sports, if you guys were running a sports team, all right, using some of your techniques, what are some things that you would do to either stand out, get out of this sea of sameness you talk about in Disrupt or things that you would think, and you've worked so much
1: with Bruce and the Giants. Oh, you own your team today. What would you do?
2: Oh, it's such a great question. I think you just sort of alluded to it. I would create way more variety. I would ask, what are the 25 ways that someone could digest one game? Right? I can digest it with going over here to this cubicle that's sort of elite. Maybe I pay for it. Maybe it's all inclusive. And I get to peer into what's going on in the dugout. I get the close up view of what's going on in the dugout. Now, in major league, Maybe they wouldn't do that because they don't want to give away any secrets if something's going on in the dugout. But in your case, it's like, who the hell cares? You know what? Let those guys see what what happens when the team's down by five and they're talking. What are they saying in there? You know, what are they doing? But my bigger point is I would find a variety of ways for people to digest the game that is new and fresh. I love your idea about, guess what? You're going to come take in a game and you're going to get to have four different seats in nine innings, or if it's four innings, if you take the game down to, you know, fewer innings, which I think is a great idea as well, right? Baseball is long. You you know, COVID, I'm going to get hammered by your listeners for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. For the listeners, please understand, I'm not cavalier about people who have been hurt by COVID and lives that have been lost. So let's get that straight. But if there's any silver linings in COVID, right, it's it's that this ugly thing is a package. What am I trying to say? There are some gifts that come wrapped in an ugly package. And COVID is an ugly package. But if it does anything for baseball, for example, it may say, you know what? The game is too long. Let's shorten it. Right? The season is too long. Let's shorten it. Or let's spread it out. You know, what if these guys played two months on? three weeks off, two months on, three weeks off. Because if you're a player, man, you're away from your family for six months of the year for all intents and purposes. Anyway, my point is, what could we learn? COVID's been an ugly thing for all of us. What are the silver linings in it that come wrapped in an ugly package? And it might be that, uh, in your case, we take the game down from nine innings to four and a half or five innings. We shorten it. We create more variety.
0: Well, what would make people not want to have to go to the concession stand. You know, you look at, I watch a baseball game, not this year, obviously, and everyone's on their phones, they're talking to people because there's so much dead time. What would be an experience where you can't not watch it? And if you start asking those questions, you know, it's what I think is so interesting about this time. The World Series is the lowest ratings in the history of World Series. And yet more people are home than they've ever been. That doesn't say baseball, you better start doing some things or you're going to keep losing followers. Change. But they've had their multi-billion dollar company. And I think that's one of the best things about Southwest. As they were growing, they were battling and fighting challenges in the beginning that they weren't, you know, this is the way we used to do it. They were just kind of figuring out as they go. And I think that's such a good advantage for smaller companies. And
2: I just wanted to spin off something you just reminded me of, Jesse, that I think is really important. And limitations don't have to be limiting. Limitations can drive creativity. I think it was Melissa Mayer at Yahoo who said, creativity loves constraints. And, you know, in the early days of Southwest, they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the capital, they didn't have the equipment, right? So they had to find creative ways. And I think in this time, this COVID hunkered down time that has constrained us all, if I were a CEO wanting to shake it up and go left on red, I would say, what are the constraints? drawing us to be more creative about? How can we take those constraints instead of bitching and moaning about them and going, we can't wait to get back to normal? I got news for you, there is not going to be a normal. The world has changed forever. Now, how much we will go back to workspaces and collaborating and all that is yet to be seen. But I got to tell you, it is not going to go back to the way we knew it before COVID. And I think most people probably agree with that. So how do we take this pandemic that has limited us in so many ways and let those constraints drive mm. Creativity and help us find the the silver linings inside the ugly package.
0: I love it I want to get into a rapid fire in a little bit but before that on that same point I don't think you used it this much in the book bocce ball, which was great uh, Very so well done, but surround yourself with misfits. You were just talking about the organization and the culture But I think to bring creativity surround yourself with misfits and i think back to kevin when our first year we had auditions at scad for performers and scad savannah college art and design not sports people by any means and we had these auditions and we had dancers we had singers we had improv artists and we just hired them. and i'll never forget this dancer that we had the idea: ideas like could he break dance during the game could he be our break dancing first base coach never played a game never seen baseball the first Inning, he runs out in the wrong time. He literally runs out there and the other team is hitting. And we're like, no, 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 no. And then he goes back out. And I remember vividly where I was sitting, and he just started doing the moonwalk and started dancing, not even knowing really what was happening during the game. And fans' cameras started going up, people were going nuts. And then he learned how to adapt a little bit to baseball. But he came out with this outside influence that really changed the game. And I think how can you hire and surround yourself with misfits that didn't come from your industry? Come from outside and bring a completely different perspective.
2: I think you have to first get comfortable in your own skin and have the courage to say, you know what, people who are different from me, even though they might be a pain in the ass to manage sometimes and they might be eccentric, will add to the creative mixture of what we're trying to do here. That's number one. Number two, if you look across the world, where are the hubs? of fashion and influence and creativity? Where are the hubs that gather the filmmakers and the fashion designers and the writers and the crazy iconic Elon Musks of the world? They're in places like London, LA, Chicago, New York. Why? They're cauldrons for misfits, right? And you can be a misfit in New York City and nobody gives a rip, right? In fact, they value that, right? Because it's such a pot of diversity. And so that diversity does what in those cities? It creates the cutting edge. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Fashion, film, business, science, it really doesn't matter. San Francisco would be another one, right? There's a lot of crazies in San Francisco.
0: See, we need to hire more crazies. You're inspiring me. We need to hire more crazies. But I think get comfortable in your own skin is such a good point because it's scary to hire someone that's so different than the way you are that there's going to be clash. There's going to be conflict. And we've had that when we brought people from the outside. You have to be able to get through that to see the
1: bigger picture.
2: You're right on in that comment. You have to expect there will be creative tension. And as a leader, your job then is to manage that creative tension, not let it take you out. You know, I think of my good friend, Bruce Bochy. Every year, he's got to take 25 guys that come from all over the world, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different languages, different politics, and he's got to get them to play as one. And one of the things that he says, because I'm privy to all this, because he will sit down at spring training and, you know, a lot of managers at spring training talk about, the, you know, the way they're going to run the, the team for the course of the year. And Bruce does all that. And Bruce focuses on the fundamentals of baseball and all that. But he spends a lot of time talking about culture and psychology and chemistry. And one of the things that he says is he says, look, you guys are going to live in tight quarters for a hell of a lot of time. You can make your differences become sandpaper that rubs you the wrong way and pisses you off and tweaks you. Or you can say those differences are going to make us stronger. It's a question of how you walk into the clubhouse. Do I walk in and say, you know what, I'm working with this dude in a yellow tux, and yellow tuxes aren't my thing. But what is it that I love about this guy that he can teach me and grow me and make me a better player or maybe just a better teammate? And what can I do to do that? Bruce's point here is it's, it's don't just show up and tolerate each other's differences. Show up and celebrate and leverage and embrace each other's differences. And when you think about embracing something, Jackie and I have been married for 30 years. I love her more today than when we first got married. And I will tell you, I have embraced her. She is my life. She is my home. I have brought her in. Well, think about if you can do that in a business. I mean, it's not the same as a marriage. I got that. But if you can say, you know what? I'm not going to just tolerate the differences between you and me. I am going to celebrate and leverage and embrace them, bring them into who I am. man. You're still going to have to manage the creative tension, brother. I will tell you, there's still going to be issues because misfits are eccentric, right? (laughs) You're an eccentric guy. Let's be candid, right? But it's the eccentric people that are changing the world.
0: So powerful. Man, that's so powerful. Celebrate the differences. All right. We're going on a whole thing with that, but I want to get to this rapid fire. But I do want to do a quick debatable because we talk about bringing creative people in. And there's been a debate, and especially, I don't know if you've read the new book by Reed Hastings, No Rules, Rules, but it's fascinating the different thinking that they have. And they talk about higher salaries instead of performance bonuses. And I know Southwest is big on lower salaries and give the big bonuses. I see both. If you're trying to bring in great talent, what's your thought on that between higher salaries versus higher performance bonuses? Which way would you lean based on all the companies you've worked with?
2: Well. Because Jackie and I cut our teeth on Southwest 30 years ago, that has pretty much stuck in my craw, so you can probably predict where I'm going to go with it. What I want and what I think every business owner wants, every CEO wants, I want people to think and act like owners of the business. I want them to treat each other, to treat customers, to treat processes. You said it earlier, never walk past a problem right? If you see a problem, you own it. Now, you may not have the skills or the authority or the resources to fix that problem, but owning it means we have a problem here that needs to be addressed. I'm going to go find the right people, the right resources, the right authority, right political, whatever I need in this organization to fix that problem, right? And then I'll hand it off. That's not walking by a problem, but that's also thinking like an owner of the business. So I guess I've just seen, I've seen too much of a a really powerful asset in how many millionaires Southwest has created by making them owners of the business through stock options and through profit sharing, right? But profit sharing is something you earn. You're not entitled to that. That doesn't just come. So. Maybe we'd have to just say one size doesn't fit all here. And for some, bringing people in with higher salaries is the way to go. It's obviously worked for them. You can't argue with that. But I guess my bigger question to you and to myself and everyone listening would be, how do you create an ownership mentality? I mean, the simple analogy that you've probably overheard is when was the last time that you Washed your rental car before you returned it. You know, did you go go put your car, your last rental car, through a seventy-five hundred twenty-five dollar detail before you turned it in? No, but I'll bet you take care of your own car. You know, what's the difference? It's ownership. So, I suppose the question could be asked between what Reed is doing and what Herb did: is how do you create that sense of ownership? And I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all.
0: You know, me and Emily, we've tried a lot of things. We let our staff dictate their own salaries a few years ago. That was a good one-year experiment. (laughs) And then we challenged, you know, we went to profit share. And, you know, now at a point we have basically a similar salary as all of them. But we know that if the team does well, we'll have some more owner distributions. And that pushes us to push the team. And that's thinking like an owner. And if everyone wins that way, I'm more on that side. But I can understand attracting talent. You have a higher base, you might attract them at first. So it's a good debate, but I lean towards you.
2: The other point to that, though, is I also think it's industry driven, right? Yes. If you're in the high tech space or you're in a very scientifically driven healthcare or you're Elon Musk sending rockets to the moon, to build batteries that'll last 600 miles, yes. maybe there you've got an argument to say we've got to have great talent to do that. The kind of talent you're talking about in Southwest, now, granted, Southwest would like a Pilot to have a 737 rating and be pretty damn safe and be one of the best pilots in the world, right? Even there, I think they would just say that when people have skin in the game, they're going to think and act more like owners. So I think it might be industry driven a little bit.
0: All right, let's finish the ninth inning here. So I've been grilling you with questions for a little bit, Kevin. So it's
1: going to be flip the script now. All right, you are now the host of Business Done Differently. You can ask me one quick question.
2: What gave you the guts to go left on red?
0: having to sell my house, me and Emily empty on our savings account, sleeping on an airbed down to our last dollar. And when we first started not being able to pay myself for three months. And when you get those constraints, those limitations, those realities, you have to change. You have to alter, you have to do it. And then you also have to know that, hey, does it fire you up to do the same thing as everyone else? Does that get you out of work to say, "Oh, right, we're going to be the same baseball team as everyone else? We're going to compete in the same game. We're not going to do things differently. And for me, it was like, Let's try dramatically differently. So I love this left on red. You keep bringing this up. I think this is so so good. But as you know, you have to not be afraid of what can happen. You have to believe so much in the bigger picture of what you're doing. And it's such a big problem. And there's so many constraints. And for us, we always start: What are the problems? What are the friction points? And if we don't like it, if we we get bored at a baseball game, if we hate getting nickel and dime, if we don't want to be advertised to, if we don't want shipping charges, if we don't want all that, why do we do it towards our customers? And that ends up being left on red because we're not afraid to throw away short-term profits for long-term fans. That's a big, big difference. It's so, also okay.
2: walk a mile, walk a mile in the shoes, thinking right. It's like, how do I think like a customer? How do I adjust this game and experience this whole entertainment experience as a customer? If it doesn't work for me, why well, am I going to foist it on them? I love that.
0: Great
1: question.
2: I, I do have one other question, though. Come on,
1: now you're breaking I, the I, rules. I, you are going left on red,
2: I, of course. But you know. Jackie and I are spending a lot of time right now in this whole area of how do you help people become courageous and vulnerable because those are two sides of the same coin. Think about this just for a second. There is no courage without vulnerability and there is no vulnerability without courage. Play that one out. Friend, think about it. You and Emily chose to do something courageous. but You had to be vulnerable to do it. Mm-hmm. You were vulnerable in doing it, in executing, which required you to be courageous and think about there's the bigger thing here. My other question to you, and I think that we could spend five more podcasts on this, is how do we help people not be fearless? Because I don't think you're ever fearless completely. I think even Elon Musk is scared of things. I've seen his emotion on TV. But how do we help people fear?
1: less i've been obsessed with small bets
0: you know you got to teach the idea of small bets for me even just wearing this yellow tuxedo i did it you know at our games i was first a black tuxedo but i almost melted because it was 100 degrees that night (laughs) then i went to yellow because it stood out with the colors and then i was comfortable at our games and then people asked me to start speaking in it being MC in it so that was a new step i had to get deeper in the pool and then when i started you know wearing it more regularly on every show going through airports kevin back in the day, <laughs> the looks that I would get, that was, I was nerve, it was nerve wracking. But because I took these small bets, just this became more acceptable, became more normal. And so what are the small bets that you can do something different and try? And you know, we just bought poker chips for our whole staff. And we're giving poker chips to every one of our people. And they have to use their poker chips on different things to experiment. And we want to celebrate the things well, that bet was off. You know, we want to celebrate that and make it okay. But the key is we have to do that first from the top. So I'm fascinated by the courage and vulnerability, but I always think it has to be small bets, small bets, small bets to get the courage to be able to take bigger bets, which then drives you more vulnerability
1: back and forth. So
2: I love that because there's no growth inside the comfort zone, right? And so small bets one little bit at a time expand that comfort zone. I think you're right on.
0: Yeah, I we had a player's dance for the first time back in 2007. That was the only new thing we were doing. But because our fans started liking that, then we went further with a male cheerleading team and then the Banana nanas, then the pep band. Because that one bet worked, we kept adding more things which people would say were different. And so, great question. We're moving on. Question time. So those are great questions, but if you want better answers in business, you have to ask better questions. You've been asking questions of the greatest companies for 30 years, asking questions of yourself, Jackie. What are some other great questions you're asking right now?
2: Well, I just asked one of them. I mean, it's it's, how do you create a courageous culture? How do you help people get over their fears? Good one. I'm I'm threatening to write a book uh, that would be a very personal book called Fear Will F You Up. And the reason I'm threatening that is because it has screwed me up in my life. You know, I've pulled punches. There are books out there that are really, really great books that I had the idea for that do not have my name on them. And it's because I didn't have the courage. I pulled the punch, right? I'm going, I don't know if the market's ready for that. I don't know. You know, the demons of doubt set in and you you go, oh. you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I feel like I am more youthful today than I've ever been because of the mileage, right? And I'm going, you know, you pull vaulted over so damn many mouse turds in your career that if you could go back and do it again, eliminate that fear, think of the traction you would have got. I guess I'm I'm on this fear thing big time because I think most people fear failure, rejection, being alone more than they fear regret. And I don't know about you, man, but when they put that thing in the ground at the end of the journey, I don't know what they're going to do with me because I don't really care much, but you know, let's say they put that thing in the ground. You know, I don't want them to carve on the tombstone. Kevin Lewis Freiberg, 1958 dash blank. He made budget.
1: Yeah. Made a difference.
2: God. So when I think about that, when I talk to CEOs today, because the CEOs that we work with, you know, that's, that's a lonely position, right? You, you look at, now you have Emily and I have Jackie, and that's, man, that, that, that's like a gift, right, to be yeah. able to, well, it can also be, it can also be the same with the oyster shell too, right? I mean, I don't know about your wife, but my wife is very, she is not bashful about telling me when she thinks, you know, I'm wrong or I'm, you know, doing something. I get it every day. day. <laughs> you know, I get grounded through that process. But there are so many CEOs that don't feel like they can talk to their people or they, they go home and maybe their spouse doesn't really get what they do or the pressure they're under
1: in their jobs. And so one of my big questions is, who do you trust? How do you deal with
2: the fear of doing big things, of thinking big and acting bold, right? Where do you find the courage to question the unquestionable if you're a real innovative company, right? And... In a fear-based culture, I ask this question all the time: What is it about love in your business that scares the shit out of you? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: In other words, why is that a dirty word?
1: Yeah.
2: Why is that a no-no to talk about? And I think if you've got companies way beyond Southwest, you know, I think of Whole Foods. They've done a really great job of creating a a meritocracy, but a family-like feel and giving people ownership. And even though we have these examples, it's still Like, man, you don't talk about that in in business. And yet, I don't know, do you you change who you are when you walk through the door of the ballpark? Do your needs change as as a human being? You know, one of our greatest needs in life is the need to be accepted, the need to be loved, and the need to belong to something bigger. Well, what if we could create a business that was as human as the human beings in it? Those are the kinds of questions I'm asking executives because it pushes them out of their comfort zone like immediately because they go, Who is this kook? You know, you don't understand. I got shareholders to respond to. I got a quarterly earning call tomorrow that I got to be on, you know. Well, I get it, but you want people to perform. You want people to be innovative. You want people to express their creativity, but you don't treat them like people.
1: Yeah. So fascinating. You got you
0: me I, that book, Fear fear will F you up. (laughs) I think that would be bigger than you even imagine because it goes through everybody every single day. And I think it's also, you know, fear of what people will think. That's one big, that, that holds everyone back. And especially now with social media, whatever you put out, you get that immediate reaction. Will people like it? Will people not like it? That book's an important book that needs to be written. And I want to finish with these quick final fork right now with that fear backdrop. Innovate now. If you could give one tip that a company, a leader, could go back to their office and innovate now, a little technique, a trick, an idea. We may have touched upon it, but what would be that idea?
2: Make it safe. In fact, expect people to question the unquestionable and reward intelligent failure. The key word there is intelligent. When people try big things that are in keeping with the strategic intent of the business, the corporate values that are driving the business and they try something that may be too early to market or it didn't have the right resources or whatever, but it had great intent, but it failed. We ought to reward the daylight side of them because how do you eliminate fear? You reward people who try big things, even when it doesn't work out. So make it safe for them to question things, to question the sacred cows and the deeply embedded assumptions. It's easy to reward success, right? But what if we rewarded failure? But the intelligent failure is we don't want to keep making the same mistakes over and over again, not learning from our
0: failure. Mm. And if you're going to record just people overcoming fear, you know, maybe that's the first step. Record, oh yeah, reward that. I love that. All right. If you were to go back to yourself right before the doctorate, right, start writing those papers and someone young, what was the best advice you would give for someone to stand out in business and in life?
1: Well,
2: sorry to repeat, but don't be afraid to go left on red. If everybody is going this way, look the opposite ways. If everybody in your business is navel-gazing because this is what we do, we're incestuous because of the industry, look outside the industry. Some of our best ideas come from unexpected people in unfamiliar places. Don't be afraid to go there.
0: Great leaders are repeaters, so go left on red. We'll keep saying now. And I keep thinking, I was like, you may get somewhere faster, but you may get in an accident, but hopefully you'll be okay. All right, Title <laughs> two here. But fascinated with the idea of going bananas. And for someone from the outside, I'd love to know what does going bananas mean to you?
2: It means you're not afraid to step into the extreme. You know, if I want to move a culture to here as a leader, I got to be out over here. Right. I mean, I really believe that. If you're trying to move people to this point, then you better exaggerate and be out of here. And every great leader, Perp would embellish stories like all get out. And I know what he was doing when he told him. He was trying to bring people to this place. I think you're doing that. You know, you're extreme in so many of the things you're doing. And that's maybe one of the highest compliments I could pay to you, right? You're out there. Right? I mean, aren't very many people thinking like you're thinking. So don't be afraid. You can work real hard at fitting in all your life, and all you're going to be is plain vanilla. Sure. I, if you want to stand out and see your sameness. Uh, I think you got to be extreme. And here's the other thing: we wrote a book on this that I that's really deep in my craw. Find a noble, heroic cause that you believe in, because I will tell you: if you can turn the business into a cause, in your case, you think about. People come to the ballpark for two hours now, or whatever it 's ultimately going to be for you guys it 's my respite it 's a way to get away from the crazy life I lead. I can forget about things and be entertained and I can and not only can I be entertained I get to participate I get to be a part of that entertainment in your organization that 's a gift that 's moving the needle and changing lives so I think when you turn the business into a cause. And I think there isn't an industry I can't find that I couldn't turn into a noble cause if you think about it long enough. What happens is the business becomes a movement, right? How many employees do you guys have?
1: 15 full-time, about 150 part-time.
2: Okay, 165 people when you're full throttle. Wouldn't it be really cool if every one of those people said, you know what, The bananas are not a baseball team. They're a movement. They're a cause. And when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, I have a direct line of sight. Maybe I'm the guy at first base doing the moonwalk. Maybe I'm the person at the hot dog stand. But whatever it is I do, I have a direct line of sight between what I do individually and that noble cause that we fight for. And when I put my head on the pillow at night, there's meaning, there's significance in what I do, and I feel really good about it.
0: I think you actually answered the last one. I said, What makes someone unforgettable? And I think the cause, the worthy cause, the movement, you may have just answered your last question. No. Yeah unbelievable. I'll tell you you Jackie's work has been unforgettable for us. It's made a difference. The time we needed most the team to think differently, to see things to have love, to bring fun into the workplace even when times weren't as fun, made a huge impact on us and we are so much better because of it. Now we're into bocce ball, we got cause, we got guts, we got all the books and we're ready to learn more. So I just thank you for the impact that you and Jackie are making on the world, my friend.
2: Well, you're very kind. Thank you for taking it and doing something with it. That you know to any author you know To have somebody take your work and then expand upon it and put their own thumbprint on it and take it to a new level is just music to your ears.
0: Love it. Thank you so much, Kevin.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe that challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered in this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.